Last week, our focus was on the subject of believer's baptism, and we looked at that uh, looking to prove uh, from Scripture uh, that believer's baptism is the only uh, New Testament authorized practice. Uh, some of the points that we listed there, uh, that uh, the baptizing of any others than those who have made a credible profession of faith is a violation of the regulative principle. Um, Baptizing any other than one who has made a profession of faith is a violation of the express command of Christ. Uh, we also talked about that uh, there are no examples of any other kind of baptism in Scripture. Uh, that household baptism examples that are used by paedo-baptists uh, in reading the context, uh, it's very clear that the gospel is preached to all who are present. And uh, that those who were baptized were those who made a profession of faith. Uh, we also talked about... Uh, the example of John the Baptist baptizing students. Uh, we also talked about the meaning of the word baptism in the Greek, the word baptizo, which means to dip. We looked at uh, the usage of that word in uh, secular Greek and Roman writings. Uh, we looked at it in the writings of Josephus, uh, a uh, first century uh, Jewish Roman historian. And then we looked at uh, examples from the early church in using uh, this word baptizo uh, and their instruction and understanding of the practice of baptism in the first centuries of the church and observed uh, that for the first 260 years at least, uh, the early church knew no other kind of baptism than the baptism of believers um, and that uh, the introduction of infant baptism was significantly later and was introduced uh, due to the deterioration of the doctrine of regeneration and also with it the deterioration of the understanding of what baptism is actually doing uh, and that baptism began to be understood as being equal to regeneration and the idea of baptismal regeneration uh, became very prevalent the idea that in baptism one's original sin was washed away uh, became the uh, understanding of the church. Uh, and given that day, the high infant mortality rate uh, and the fear that if one died without being baptized and forgiven of original sin, uh, they had no hope. Uh, and so I believe the practice of infant baptism began in response to uh, the need to make sure that all uh, were forgiven of uh, original sin and that it progressed uh, from a small regional practice to one that was more widespread uh, until uh, it was championed by Augustine. Uh, the official position of the church on this subject uh, remained believers' baptism only. Uh, the first uh, indication of official church position on baptizing uh, more than just believers, infants, uh, dates to 401, the Fourth Council of Carthage issued a statement uh, defending the practice of infant, infant baptism, and it was followed by another council in 416. So we established that, and this, this evening we're going to backtrack a little bit in light of what we've studied uh, and look at a couple of passages of Scripture that are very important in the subject of baptism, chapters that uh, our uh, Presbyterian, Paedo-Baptist brothers and friends will use in defense of their position, passages that I believe uh, we need to understand rightly. We need to understand historically what Reformed Baptists have taught about them in light of our belief that only people who have made a credible confession of faith should be baptized uh, and a believing only membership. Uh, the two passages we'll look at 
are Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And in connection with that one, we'll look at Romans 4.11 uh, briefly. And then the other passage we'll look at uh, is Acts 2, 37 through 41. So if you would turn with me first to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. The uh, great argument uh, for a baptism that is not just uh, comprising believers is built upon the foundation of Old Testament covenant theology. The idea that circumcision, physical circumcision, equals baptism. And there is no text more important or more central to that understanding and the defense of a paedo-baptist practice. Uh, there's no, no, no passage more important than Colossians 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, and killed out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the question with this passage is, is the circumcision being spoken of initially a circumcision that is of the flesh, a physical circumcision, or is it a circumcision that is spiritual, a circumcision that is pointing to the reality of regeneration? It's important to make the right distinction there, uh, because if it is a physical circumcision that is being spoken of, um, and bringing in, which I want you to turn there real quick to read uh, that particular verse, parallel between circumcision and baptism hinges upon Colossians 2 and the application of it uh, and what follows from that conclusion is what we see in Romans 4 and particularly verse 11. So let's start in verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of the circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. The importance of these two passages together, the paedo-baptist thinking, um, circumcision, physical circumcision, equals uh, water baptism today, and circumcision in the Old Testament for all who received it, it was a sign and a seal Therefore, baptism, being an equal sign to circumcision, is a sign and a seal to all who receive it. Important to understand uh, what sign and seal mean. A sign is a visible token demonstrating a reality. 
A seal indicates that whatever is being indicated by the sign is true of the one who bears the sign. And so in Romans 4, verse 11, when Paul writes that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal, what it's saying is that Abraham received physical circumcision, and it was for him a sign of circumcision of heart, but it was also a seal of the circumcision of heart that he had already received. Abraham's circumcision uh, is seen by paedobaptists as being normative for every other circumcision that is practiced uh, in the Old Testament, and therefore is normative for uh, the practice of believers, uh, not believers' baptism, but baptism uh, in the New Testament time period. Does that line of thinking make sense? Do you understand it? Any questions or comments, clarification on that line of thinking? Yes? So was Abraham actually physically circumcised? Yes. After God circumcised him in the heart? Yes. So the the sequence of events for Abraham was Abraham believed God, it was credited as righteousness, and then he was circumcised. Yes, circumcision was established in, I believe it's Genesis 17, uh, and that God established it with Abraham, and that physical sign became a visible sign of one entering into the Abrahamic covenant, and obviously continued throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, no, no, no you're fine. Um, yeah, so every male Jew, descendant of Abraham onward, was to be circumcised, Uh, And we see in scripture examples of circumcision being practiced. The belief in the Old Testament time period uh, is that it was a sign and a seal. And in the Presbyterian paedo-baptist world today, again, baptism is seen as being exactly equal uh, to uh, the practice of circumcision. The the one thing, yes, Dusty. Can you go back to the sign and seal and just do it for me again? Yes. So the sign is demonstrating a spiritual reality. A seal is saying that that spiritual reality is completely yours. So for an example, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, for you it's a sign of a, an important spiritual reality, the death of Christ. But for you it's also a seal in that the death of Christ is personally meaningful to you because it purchased salvation for you. The efficacy of what Christ did in the sealing of that is true in your heart. So something that is a sign is a sign for everyone, regenerate or not. A seal is only for the regenerate. Exactly. Repeat that in the mic so people can hear it. Yes. So, and that's the important distinction. Um, A sign is something that points to a spiritual reality, but the sealing of it is only true for those who have experienced that reality. For example, the subject of baptism um, in relation to circumcision, um, my argument against the understanding of the the paedo-baptist, that is okay. Um, The So as I was saying, my argument in response to the Paedo-Baptist position is that their use of Abraham's circumcision as being normative 
for everyone else um, is wrong. The reason why is Abraham's circumcision was completely different in meaning and purpose than all of the circumcisions that followed. The reason for that is Abraham was circumcised after he had faith. The rest were circumcised, pointing to their need for faith. And so, whereas it was a sign and a seal to Abraham, for those who received it, it was only a sign, but not a seal until regeneration. What circumcision was pointing to was a reality in their heart. So, what does that do for then our understanding of Colossians 2? Circumcision is uh, not a seal automatically for everyone in receiving it, then the paedo-baptist argument of baptism being a sign and seal to all who receive it uh, doesn't work. So therefore, if you're being consistent in that line of thought, if circumcision is only a sign for those who receive it until they're regenerated, then baptism would only be a sign, not a seal. That's the consistent line of thought. But my argument, in addition to that, is baptism is not equal to circumcision. Uh, circumcision is a physical, fleshly thing. Baptism is something that's performed, uh, also physical today. But circumcision is pointing toward a spiritual reality that needs to happen in the heart. Baptism is looking back upon something that has happened in the heart. In Colossians 2, the argument that Paul is making here is not that circumcision equals baptism, but that circumcision and what it's pointing to, regeneration, is like unto baptism. Let me point out in uh, verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Made without hands. Therefore, the circumcision being spoken of there is not a physical, fleshly circumcision performed by the hand of a human being. This is spiritual regeneration, spiritual circumcision. So Paul's argument is this. In Christ, you were spiritually circumcised, a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is he speaking of there when he's talking about the removal of the body of the flesh? Well, he's pointing to what regeneration does in the negative sense. The flesh, the old man, Scripture says, dies, and then they gain spiritual life. They become a new person. That's what Paul's getting at there. He's talking about the old man dying, and then a new spiritual life coming. And then baptism is brought in as an example of this having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. It's important to note the number of times in this passage of Scripture that spiritual life, spiritual rebirth, is mentioned. So, circumcision made without hands. You were dead in your transgressions, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. So Paul is talking about a spiritual circumcision here. Yes. The body of flesh is the old man dying and being put to death.
So in spiritual circumcision, regeneration, the old man, the flesh, is put to death, and the spiritually dead heart is raised to life. Uh, it's important to note that this circumcision is called the circumcision of Christ, not the circumcision of Moses. The circumcision of Christ is regeneration, accomplished by the spirit of Christ, working and bringing life to someone who is spiritually dead. Here's uh, Richard Barcellus writing on this passage. He says, baptism does not replace circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Spiritual circumcision, not baptism, replaces, better fulfills, physical circumcision. Baptism in Colossians 2.12 is a result of spiritual circumcision, regeneration. Burial and resurrection with Christ is not equivalent to, but has causally, but to, but causally subsequent to spiritual circumcision. Physical circumcision has been replaced or fulfilled by spiritual circumcision under the new covenant. Let me explain what he's getting at there. The mistake in Paedobaptist thinking is that baptism replaced circumcision. But what happened in the new covenant is that what replaced physical circumcision was spiritual circumcision. Physical circumcision is a type pointing to the spiritual reality. And when Christ fulfilled all that the old covenants required, the, the physical sign fell away, just like the need for that physical nation of Israel, a type of the church, that fell away. And so physical circumcision, the fulfillment of that is spiritual circumcision, not baptism. Baptism is the new covenant result of spiritual regeneration. This is the, the, the thing that Paul is getting at here. Spiritual circumcision has replaced physical circumcision, not baptism replacing circumcision. Again, as I said at the beginning, baptism and circumcision are pointing to similar things. Circumcision is looking unto what needs to happen in the heart, regeneration. Baptism is looking back upon the fact that regeneration has happened. And it's a outward means by which one is identifying themselves with Christ. That in his death, they joined with him and died to themselves. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too have they been raised to life spiritually through spiritual circumcision and now live and walk spiritually. So this is an important distinction. This is a very important passage. Paul here is not really addressing the subject of physical circumcision. He's pointing immediately to the fulfillment of it. Spiritual circumcision, not made with hands. The removal of the body of the old man by circumcision that is of Christ, not of Moses, a spiritual circumcision. And the new covenant example of that is in baptism, uniting with Christ, demonstrating in that water baptism that one has died to self, and is raised to walk as a new spiritual being. Questions or comments on that passage? The second passage is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and through 41. As you're turning there, 
again, in summation, we as Reformed Baptists do not believe that baptism replaced circumcision. We believe that regeneration has replaced circumcision, physical circumcision. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. And this is at the very end of Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Powerful results the gospel message of the Apostle Peter. The verse particularly uh, in question that we're going to be looking at is uh, verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. The interpretation um, of this passage uh, through the lens of circumcision equaling baptism is that the promise received by a parent is also belonging to the children covenantally. And they argue that the baptism received by the parent is automatically um, open to their children. And that this passage, along with Colossians 2 and Romans 4, uh, supports this system of the baptism of those children of whose parents have been baptized themselves. The Reformed Baptist interpretation of this passage is completely different, and I believe does far better justice to the context of Peter's message. So, verse 39, the promise is for you and your children. What promise is he speaking of there? Well, there's two important keys in our text. The first is in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I put forward to you that the promise spoken of there is none other than the Holy Spirit. And I point you back to verse 17 and following to prove that that is uh, what Peter is speaking of here. Verses 17 through 21 is a quote from the prophet Joel. And it's a promise of something that would come in the new covenant. The prophet Joel writes, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they 
shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and then the Lord. The prophecy given there by Joel, particularly verse 17 down through verse 18, is of the coming of the Holy Spirit being poured forth in a fresh, new way. There's an incredible, important parallelism between these verses and verse 39. The promise is for you and your children. Children there is an exact parallel to the sons and daughters of verse 17. And then those who are far off, verse 18, your bond slaves, both men and women. The parallelism between these verses, again, is very important. The idea here is that Peter, in this one verse, is summarizing very briefly and shortly what he had said before and bringing the prophet Joel to bear, saying to them that the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise began on that day when the Spirit came at Pentecost and the gospel then went forth to the nations. The Spirit came in a new way, and it was poured out on all mankind, not just Jews, but Gentiles. The idea of the sons and daughters and children is that th this new pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not just going to be confined to that one generation. It's going to be for that generation's children and the next and the next and the next. It, it, it's as if Peter is saying that this is for you and for your children. It's going to be passed down that the Spirit is going to be given in regenerating and indwelling and working in generation from generation to generation all the way down until Christ returns. So that is uh, the interpretation of this passage uh, from a Reformed Baptist perspective, that the promise being for those who heard and for their children is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being the promise uh, only comes upon those who have been regenerated. The Holy Spirit only indwells those who have been regenerated, which means that the ones who are then baptized in receiving this promise, uh, again, are those who have received the Holy Spirit and believed. And that's what we see. Verse 41, since those, since, So then those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So again, the picture is Peter is preaching to them. The prophet Joel has spoken and given a promise of the Spirit that is fulfilled in that day, beginning and going forth. And that that promise is, is not just for those people there today, but it's going to be poured out on generation to generation to generation, even upon us. And so today we can see this promise here and know that this promise is also for our children that God will pour out his spirit and save and convert some of our children, which is an incredible encouragement uh, to the parents. And that baptism was only performed for those who received his word. Receiving the words uh, describes the act of faith. Those who did not believe rejected his words. Those who believed received them. Jamin Hubner writes, The point of Acts 2.39 is not to reestablish any Old Testament principle, 
as if to assert that the recipients of the sign of the promise are somehow determined by someone else's repentance. Rather, it is to demonstrate that the promise is for the church, that those who call upon the name of the Lord. In the Old Covenant, covenant status was conferred irrespective of spiritual qualifications. Thus, the covenant blessing could be lost. In the New Covenant, the conferring and consequent possession of covenant status assures the bestowal of the required response which is faith. Yes. Baptist circles, yes, not all. Okay. Um, the large majority and the more biblically sound ones, no. The idea is that the parents' regeneration and baptism means that their children are automatically brought into the new covenant and are full participants in the covenant community. Even though they're clearly unregenerate? Yes. So then, if they stay unregenerate, then what's their Many of them will live their whole lives, and many will live their whole lives in the church and will wrestle with that. Um, if a child is baptized as an infant and they just go off the deep end, they hate God, they become an atheist, how does the parent then reconcile their actions of baptizing that child to bring them into the new covenant? They would say yes, but there is a reality in the, the paedo-baptist system of a, let's see if I can get the terminology right, um, just as like we, we've talked about the Abrahamic covenant having those, that two-sidedness to it, they see the new covenant in that way where there are the external members of the covenant, but there are, there's also that internal membership who have all of the benefits that that covenant brings, whereas all the rest are merely just externally benefiting. They're in that covenant community, um, but they, they don't enjoy all of the benefits of the membership because they're not among the regenerate. So it's the idea of the, the visible, invisible church. That's how the Paedo-Baptists would understand that. So, so they don't necessarily go to heaven because they're baptized. Correct. It's, it's a confusing system. Um, as much as I've read, it, it's sometimes hard for me to wrap my mind around all of those things because I, I obviously didn't grow up in that. I didn't grow up around that context at all. Um, and trying to understand that system um, for me is really hard, which is why so many people in Pado Baptist circles struggle with assurance. Um, I've known people who said their entire church, they didn't know a single person who believed they were actually converted. All of them, even their pastor, wrestled and didn't know if they were actually converted. Um, so I am not an expert on um, Pado-Baptist understanding of things. I understand more. Um, 
I believe that the, the clear teaching of Scripture, you know, Jeremiah 31, everyone in the New Covenant is one who knows the Lord. Um, no man will turn to his brother in the covenant and say, know the Lord. They will all know. They all know him. Uh, that's not saying that every single person who's a member of a New Testament church is in the covenant um, because as pastors, we're not infallible. We can't know without a doubt that someone's profession of faith is genuine. Um, and even in the New Testament time period, the early church, they had the problem of apostasy. People uh, over time demonstrating that they didn't actually believe and they went out from them because they weren't of them. Uh, and that problem is, is still true today And that uh, the problem of apostasy is uh, a present constant issue in churches. Um, so anyways, um, this passage is really important. It goes to the heart of, uh, in my opinion, the fundamental error in Pado-Baptist thought that a parent's membership in the covenant through being converted or even just receiving baptism, they may not be confident that they're even converted, but their baptism into the covenant means that their children automatically have access to baptism and are brought into the covenant and are part of the covenant community and called covenant children. Um, in some um, Pado-Baptist circles, that means that they are open to having access to participation in communion, um, which I have a big problem with. Um, I think that falls into the category of um, eating in an unworthy manner, uh, which is a terrifying thing. Scripture says eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Um, but again, this goes back to the issue of the promise here in this passage is not something that's handed down through children to children, through uh, hereditary means. Um, that's the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant was about physical membership. Um, it wasn't even really about spiritual things. It pointed to spiritual things. But they had to repent and believe and be regenerated, um, which, again, is uh, something that's part of the New Covenant. Um, so, in summary, baptism and circumcision do not equal each other. Physical circumcision was replaced by spiritual circumcision. Baptism is pointing to the reality of regeneration that has happened in the heart. Scripture gives no examples of any other kind of baptism. Only those who believed, received the word, and responded in faith. The promise in Acts 2 is the gift of the Holy Spirit coming upon those who are convicted of sin and are regenerated and demonstrate godly repentance. And that that promise is not just confined to that early church first generation, but it's going to be for generation from generation to generation. That God's promise is, is that he's all a true church. Questions or comments on that before we conclude this? Jeremy. The last part of verse 39. Yes. The last part of verse 39, it says, For all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God were called to himself. So we already know that not all who are circumcised are of Abraham. Yes. And is this also helping 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the context of this sermon is that Peter is preaching to a Jewish audience. It's the day of Pentecost, and the people he's preaching to are the Jews of the dispersion from all over uh, the, the Roman world. They've come, and, and they're hearing Peter preach, and he's preaching to them and communicating to them in that, that phrase, all who are afar off, Gentiles, that the gospel and the gift of the Spirit is for them too, and that uh, it's not just going to be confined to the Jewish people. And that that's been God's purpose all along, that it's supposed to go forth and demonstrating that um, the Jews did not have a monopoly uh, on uh, the spiritual blessings of God. In fact, the majority of them didn't have any access to the spiritual blessings of God. They weren't regenerated. Um, so uh, he's preaching to them this message, calling them to repentance. And these are all Jews. Even their physical circumcision uh, meant nothing. If they weren't regenerated, uh, Paul says, you know, their their circumcision has become uncircumcision through their disobedience. Um, a lot more that can be said about that, but you know, those who are afar off, Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. That's the effectual call of God in the heart. So, does that answer your question? You want have something more specific that you're wanting me to speak to? Okay, I have, I have time, so if you want to ask it now or later, it's really fine. Sure. Any other? Yes. I was just going to say the uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 28, is also very helpful um, because in the context in which that verse is found, uh, the Apostle Paul is arguing. After he has made that universal indictment against the Gentiles that they, they have rebelled against God, then in chapter 2 he begins to show that the Jews are, are not in any different position to Christ yet. And, and worse, and then he makes that outstanding uh, statement in uh, he is not a Jew. to the things you're saying, it's basically, I think, helpful to understand uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter's message, which is that the Holy Spirit is now working. This is the age of the Spirit, and he's going to be working here, and he's going to be working wherever Jewish people are found, and what is even better, he's going to go beyond I couldn't agree with you more. The verses there are so important. He's not a Jew as one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. That circumcision in the beginning was really all about regeneration. It's a sign pointing to the need of it. And it came to those who had received it 
after they had faith, they sealed, uh, demonstrating that what the sign was pointing to had become true in their own hearts. Um, and baptism functions uh, in a way that's similar. Um, that for us, baptism is a sign that is performed looking back upon the reality of regeneration, the union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Um, so these verses are, are difficult. If in sitting here and hearing this, your wheels are rolling in your brain, you're like, I think I'm getting some of it, but maybe not all of it, that's okay. These are some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to understand. Uh, there's a lot of uh, points of difficulty. Um, but I hope this has been helpful in trying to open up uh, the Reformed Baptist understanding of what circumcision was and was not, and the fact that regeneration replaced it, uh, and what the promise in Acts 2 is about. Uh, and there are, there are more passages that we could deal with, um, but, but these are the two most important ones. Um, and I believe that the most consistent understanding and interpretation of them is the one that I have given uh, tonight. Yes? Child dedication. That's a great question. I personally don't know the history of origin. Um, I know that they probably did not originate in Cato Baptist circles because infant baptism was the means by which that happened. Um, basically, an infant dedication is very similar in a lot of ways um, without it being covenantal in nature. Uh, I would imagine that that probably arose in Baptist circles. Um, anybody that knows more of the history and origin of that can speak to it. I don't know. I don't know with particularity. It's a pretty good bet that it's... I don't know with, with particularity, but it's a pretty good bet that something like that would have started along with um, the movement for revival and things like yeah. a lot of the other oddities. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> back when I started studying these things very thoroughly in seminary and reached the conclusion that, you know, infant baptism is really a glorified covenantal version of a baby dedication. And then trying to look in scripture, is there, is there any instruction or encouragement for anything of that sort? Um, and outside of the circumcision equaling baptism argument, there isn't any, there is no example of it. Um, and I don't, um, find any need to perform that. I think, uh, obviously, there, there's a variety of opinion on that. Um, I think every child is the Lord's in that sense. Yes. As long as you're under the, uh, my understanding of child dedication is more for the parent. That the yeah. parent was actually dedicating that they were going to raise that child up in the yeah. admonition of the Lord. It was a public um, profession of that. Like, this is my child, and I'm going to dedicate myself in the admonition of the Lord, not actually dedicating them to God, you're saying the parent is actually laying out that responsibility to help them. It depends on where you're at. Yeah. My church was, we dedicate this child to you, God, and then there was also the, like, church affirmation of, we commit to helping the parents raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It was kind of a two-prong at my church growing up. Yep. I was going to say, for the first time I, I, I 
came across the the idea of the, uh, the passage that was read and emphasized was uh, about Hannah. Yeah, and Samuel. And Samuel. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was the sort of the drop of passage. Yeah. Uh, so there wasn't any sort of real covenant understanding of it. It's no. just the fact that dedicating this child to the Lord and, and therefore uh, actually also there wasn't any thinking about whether the child had become a Christian or anything of the sort. Right. Yeah. 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 It's just I think a ceremony that they, they used to do and mm. now that I look back I don't think that they really thought through it to think about it but the passage they were quoting is the summer. In fact, again, they were also saying, you know, we don't baptize infants, we just dedicate them. So it was like, a, to my understanding, it was a, a reaction to pedo baptism. Mm. And they therefore felt that this was a bit more biblical in their understanding. Sure. Uh, so, because all these were Baptists and the Baptists believed in, believe and be baptized. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they would use the passage of an extraordinary, unusual circumstance and make it normative. You know, like what happened with Hannah and with Samuel um, is a one-of-a-kind story in the Old Testament, and that the dedication of that, that child was very unique. Um, and I, I personally think it's wrong to take a passage like that that has uh, extraordinary um, specific meaning in a context and, and make it a blanket application. That's true. It, it's like uh, the David danced uh, description mm. and, and then want to, want to take that and then dance every day in church. Right. This is just uh, my, my own observation. But I think that one of the things that, that occurred in American revivalism in
that motive to do all of the things kind of explains both the rededications and the babyfications coming out of the, the revivalistic culture. One other thing I just wanted to, to add, because I know we're getting close to wrapping up with that. To me, a, a, a very important summary is that Colossians 2, where what you see in Colossians 2, there is nowhere in Colossians 2 a connection between or a comparison of baptism to physical circumcision. Yes. The entirety of that passage in Colossians 2 is a connection, an analogy, and a connection between spiritual circumcision and physical baptism. That you have been baptized because of what has happened in your heart in the circumcision that was made without ends. And so, certain physical circumcision becomes like so many other things in, in, in the Old Testament, that the, um, the building and the establishment of a, a physical kingdom with, with boundaries. It, it was a, a type that pointed to a spiritual reality, that the, the development of a people that was a hereditary people, that where membership in, in that hereditary people, that national citizenship was passed passed down by physical descent. That, um, that was a type that was pointing to a spiritual reality, and because of the, our understanding of the covenant of grace, we see that all of that was like scaffolding. It was like scaffolding that was pointing to something that was happening all along. The covenant of grace, although Christ had, had not yet come, his blood had not yet been shed, the covenant of grace was active and in operation, and and people were, were being saved, and God was building his kingdom and establishing the kingdom of Christ even then, and people were being saved by, by faith alone in the promised Messiah. He was building all of that, but it was surrounded by this, it was a spiritual reality where people were being saved and made a part of the, the covenant of grace by their faith, being made spiritual descendants of Abraham, and that physical descent of Abraham, the physical nation was like scaffolding, pointing to that spiritual reality that was occurring, that and, and that was happening within those realities all along. And so circumcision, physical circumcision becomes like all of the rest of that scaffolding. And when Christ comes and him crucified, he is on the cross and he is resurrected. When that reality shines through, all the scaffolding falls off and you see the reality. And the baptism becomes the sign and the seal of what is real and what all of this was pointing to all along. Could you agree with you more, Chris? Can you actually drop the mic? Or <laughs>